This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, it's your host, Rick Houston, and welcome to this episode of the Scene Vault Podcast. Now, Steve Wade could not make it this week because he's in the process of moving and evidently got tied up with bankers and so on and so forth. You know, if you've ever been through that, you know what I'm talking about. So he was not able to make it this week, but I have a pretty doggone good replacement. Kelly Crandall from Racer Magazine is here this week. And this is actually the first time that we've met face-to-face. Of course, we've exchanged notes on Twitter and so forth. Kind of got to know her that way. But Kelly, I am so glad that you were able to be here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for thinking of me as a replacement. As I said on Twitter, I'm not, I can't hold a candle to Steve and his knowledge and experience, but I'm very excited to be here. And uh, I... I, again, I, the compliments of you thinking that I'm a suitable replacement is enough for me, so exciting. Well, this is the way I'm going to choose to look at it, because you tweeted yesterday that you couldn't hold a candle to Steve's experience. I think you're basically throwing shade at his age. 
Because he's like a million years old. No, you know. So oh, come I, on. You can admit I, it. No, because I love Steve. And I've had the opportunity. <laughs> I've, I've had actually the, the wonderful opportunity to work with Steve a little bit um, back when I was still at Popular Speed. And he joined and he was contributing some columns. And it was always, I would always laugh and I would tell Steve because I was considered his editor. And I said, what? what? I said, in what world? Really? Yeah. I said, what? <laughs> in what world am I Steve Wade's editor and I'm yeah. telling him what to do? Um, so, no, I have just an immense respect for Steve and everything that he's done and accomplished and his opinions and his knowledge. And uh, he is somebody of quite a few people that I look at with such high regard. And, um, and I say to myself, if I can just come close to, you know, having that level of experience and that knowledge in the sport and to be around in a good way to be around as long as, as he has, I, that would be amazing to me. So yeah, that, but that's one of the things I've always chuckled about with Steve. In what world am I editing Steve Wade and, and telling him how things should be? Well, I feel the same way because, you know, me doing this podcast and him joining in basically every week, it's odd for me to basically give him direction. Mm-hmm. You know, can you talk about this? Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's kind of a strange position, especially after he was my boss, really my boss for 10 years. Yeah, that's why I love listening to the to this podcast, because the, the two of you playing off each other is, is really funny to me. Because again, knowing the two of you, knowing what your relationship was with Scene, so now to, to have you be the host of the podcast and you picking on him when it was reversed, you know, years ago, that's, I, I love it. I, it comes off really, really well in the podcast, honestly. Did he give you a nickname? Not that I know of. Not that he ever said to me. He okay. may have had right. names for me, well, but not, you know, none that Because <laughs> we've, we've told the story about Sasquatch, so I was going to compare nicknames and see if you got a better nickname than I did. No, if he if he had any, I'm sure it was just ones that he probably mumbled to himself under his breath <laughs> whenever having to deal with me. <laughs> so it's probably better you didn't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know of, of, of any that he may have had. Now, Kelly, give me a short resume. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you got into the sport. Okay, so long story short is the Daytona 500 is our Super Bowl. So even casual fans may tune in to the Daytona 500. My my dad at that point in, in 2001 was a casual race fan, but watched the Daytona 500. So of course, 2001, you, you think automatically the passing of Dale Sr. Dale Sr. did die that day. My dad was watching the race. I don't remember watching the race. What I remember is just my dad and his friends talking for months afterwards about how important it was that they watched the July race when the series went back to yeah, Daytona. Wow because it was going to be the first race back and you know on that racetrack and it was they just knew it was going to be special they even tossed around the idea of getting tickets they didn't of course but that was the first race that I remember vividly sitting down in front of the tv I think in a beanbag chair back then and I didn't move the entire night I was fascinated by the speed the the cars being inches apart um under the lights at daytona that was my introduction to nascar and i was hooked from that moment on which explains why i became a dale jr fan because he won the race it explains why i love restrictor plate racing because that was the first race i saw um it explains why i love daytona and consider it my second home so that's how i was introduced to the sport and then by 2003 2004 it was a full-on honestly obsession i mean i wanted to read everything i wanted to know everything i wanted to watch every practice and qualifying and every uh bush series race and truck race like i just wanted to know everything that's how i got into it and by the time i was in high school it had turned from i mean it was still an obsession but it had turned into well, I like writing. What am I going to do with my life? I really, really like writing. Like, it was all I thought. Like, I would plan my schedule, like, my weekend schedule around, well, I can't go anywhere because I have to sit home and watch racing. So, it really was, like, the only thing I cared about in life. So, in high school, when writing kind of came to the forefront and, and I really enjoyed English classes and things like that, it was, maybe I can combine these two. Maybe I can I can do something here. Because before that, a lot of people will laugh at this. I thought I wanted to be like a forensic scientist or something to that point. Wow. Yeah. You know, because CSI, those shows were, were popular. I watched a lot of that. I was like, well, I'm going to go be the next CSI or like Gil Grissom from, you know, CSI Las Vegas or whatever it was. But um, <laughs> thankfully, I did not do that. I don't I don't think that would have turned out well. So, yeah, long story short, I mean, by the time I got to high school, I knew what I wanted to do. And then after that, it was a matter of making it happen. That's the cliff notes version the extended cliff notes version kelly what we're going to do is i'm going to go ahead and play this interview that i did with bud moore before he passed and afterwards we will talk a little bit about your reaction 
On the afternoon of August 11, 1991, J.D. McDuffie lost his life in a crash at Watkins Glen, but there was more to the man than that moment, and more to that moment than is widely known. I'm Brock Beard, author of J.D. The Life and Death of a Forgotten NASCAR Legend. For nearly two decades, I've been collecting stories never before heard and photographs never before seen to share the life of a man who must never be forgotten. And now, thanks to Waldorf Publishing, that story can finally be told. Featuring interviews with more than 30 people, including his wife, Ima Jean, his daughter, Linda, Richard Petty, and Ned Jarrett, to name a few, my book offers a rare glimpse into a world of racing not often seen, the world of the underdog, the blue-collar racer, a man who over 653 starts earned the respect of his peers and the enthusiasm of his devoted fans. 27 years after McDuffie's passing, it is my privilege to announce that J.D., the life and death of a forgotten NASCAR legend, is now on sale at Walt WaldorfPublishing.com, Amazon, and other online retailers. For more information, check out my website at lastcar.info. That's L-A-S-T-C-A-R.info. First of all, Bud Moore, congratulations on getting into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. When you heard Brian France announce your name, is there any way to put into words what your reaction was? Well, <laughs> well you know, it was a great honor, and uh, knowing that uh, France calling out the first four names, and I figured, you know, I said, well, I'm not going to get in on this round, you know, and then he sort of hesitated a second or two, you know, and finally he said, Bud Moore, when he did, I like to faint it out because <laughs> I was speechless and I couldn't say a word, and... Uh, Tears come in my eyes, and everybody trying to talk to me and this stuff. And uh, I had, it took me a couple of three minutes to really get over the shock. But it's one of the greatest honors I guess I've ever encountered during my whole career racing in, in life, I would say. And uh, it's great to know that I'm one of the five that was picked. And knowing that I'm going in the Hall of Fame with David Pearson and Bobby Allison, those two that drove race cars for me. And it's a great honor all the way around. I had a, I had so many telephone calls and congratulations and everybody and uh, people coming up to me, and grabbing me, and hugging me, and congratulating me and all this. And like I say, uh, you had to look at the whole situation and the way it was and how it happened and being, you know, selected to go into the Hall of Fame as I was and uh, all this. Uh, it's a great honor and all the people that's been so nice to me coming up and talk to me about it and all this and. You know, it's it's a thrill, and uh, I still haven't quite got over it yet, but uh, knowing that all the stuff that's happening and uh, people calling and what's going on, it's, it's a great deal. You know, it's it's such a big honor to me to be selected to go in the NASCAR Hall of Fame and all this, and knowing just how big a deal it is, it, uh, it's something great. I'm already in most all the other Hall of Fames, you know, one at Talladega, and I'm in the Motorsports Hall of Fame, and I'm in the South Carolina Athletic Hall of Fame, and I guess this was one of the biggest one of all three of those, and uh, it's just great to know that uh, you're going to be inducted and all this. And It's hard to say just what my feelings really are, but they're really great. At what point did you first start tinkering with race cars? Well, we got started, in, uh, me and Cotton Owens, and uh, then we started tinkering with race cars. And what really happened, Gober Sobe was running a race car, and 1946, I believe it was, I hit the Spartanburg Fairgrounds, and he wrecked and tore the car up pretty bad. And so Cotton was working up there at Tindley's junkyard, and uh, they brought the car up there, and they wanted to know that uh, get a body put on it. So I helped Cotton and all. We, we cut it through the windshield and put the whole tail end of a body and everything on it and put it all back together for him and fixed it. And he come back there next week or so I think it was and got the car and was going somewhere else and the race and this is when me and Cotton and all decided well man that's all this took we need to start it get us a race car so anyway there's running a guy named Hugh Atkins was running the racetrack up at the land room about 15-20 miles from here and uh he had a race car and he come down there and me and Joe Eubanks was in the used car business too then and uh there's a 39 or 40 mile Ford that he wanted, so he said, "I got a car. I got a race car. I want to trade for it." So we traded for it and all this, and uh, we got to checking. We went over it and all this, and so they're running a race in up in Hendersonville, North Carolina, which is only about 50 miles from here. So we got the car all ready, and we're taking it up to Hendersonville. 
I got in, went around, run a lap or two around the racetrack, and I went through the fence with it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we fooled around and Cotton got in, and he drove it. And uh, Eubanks, he run it a few laps, and uh, I think what uh, Eubanks run third or fourth in the Constellation race. This is when they run two, three heat races, the Constellation in the main. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we finished about fourth or fifth in the main race, so that's how we got started. And and all the races we ran in and the Modifieds and all this stuff, you know, and then France came along, you know, and the problem we having with a lot of the promoters, you know, running the race, that uh, we'd go to the pay winner to get paid off, and uh, they would leave with the money, and we wouldn't get paid. So France Sr., I think he got into that same situation too, you know, and so this is what gave him the idea to form NASCAR. And uh, so we got people together and all this, and uh, on December 1947 at Daytona, the old Streamline Hotel, and uh, that's where NASCAR was formed. And uh, Now, were you actually in those meetings? Well, I, did, I was going, Joe Littlejohn and Joe Epton, if you remember, Joe Epton was a scorer mm-hmm. for NASCAR, and yeah. Joe Littlejohn, he was a promoter here, and him and France Sr. was real big buddies, and... They was going Daytona, and I was supposed to go with them, and something came up, and I, I didn't get to go. And uh, so I wished I had a went, but, I, I mean, it was a situation where I couldn't go at the time. And, uh, you know, Red Boat's the one that came up with the name NASCAR. And uh, Joe Epton, was, he got down there, and he didn't get to go to the meeting because he got sick, <laughs> you know. But anyway, it, it was something, you know, running the modifieds all the way up through till we started running the Grand National Car in 1950, and... Uh, we won a lot of races. We used to run on Columbia, South Carolina on Thursday night. We run Charlotte on Friday night, and we'd run somewhere on Sunday, you know, like Lakewood and Atlanta, or we'd run Asheville, Weaverville, or we'd run Augusta, Georgia. There's also many other racetracks around that we'd run over to, on Sunday. I remember this. I worked about three months on a flathead motor that I'd been working on, and finally I finally got it all together. And first night I run it, I was taking it to Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, we ran there, and uh, we won Columbia, South Carolina with it 13 races in a row. And <laughs> wow. we won 20 in a row all told, but we won 13 in a row at Columbia, South Carolina. And what was so funny, Bodie, Buddy Schumann, we were buying all of our high-performance parts and often Schumann, like Ella Brock and Offenhauser parts and pieces, and he was a distributor for them. I knew him real well and all this stuff, and... We was in Columbia, and we done won about three or four races in Columbia, you know, and he, they pulled in there, and they parked right beside us, you know, and he said to me, he said, you know what? I said, what? He said, I'd like to lay a sandal on that thing just to see how stout it really is. And he said, how about let me drive it a couple of three laps? I said, well, you better ask Joe. I said, he's, ask Joe Eubanks. He's, he's the driver. I said, I know Joe. So he went on and talked to Joe, and Joe told him, said, well, it's up to Bud, whatever he wants to He come back and told him, so. I said, all right, so on the second warm-up period, he went out and he run about three or four laps. Come in, he was flying. <laughs> he come in, you know, he backed it back out and got out, and he turned around to William Thompson, his mechanic, and said, you might want well to load it up because we ain't got a prayer. <laughs> <laughs> we run modifieds along every now and then. We'd run it. Uh, then we got into the Grand National Park real strong in 1950. We had a 50-model Oldsmobile we ran, and, we we done right well with it and all this, and then uh, Herb Thomas and uh, Dick Rathman and all of them started running the Hudson Hornet, and uh, so in 1952 we started running the Hudson Hornet. Who was actually listed as the car owner at that time? Well, on most of the the modifieds and all that was uh, I was was the car owner, and then uh, Phil Oates out of. Forest City Oats Motor Company. He was most of the car owner and all on most some of the Grand National, and I okay. was part car owner and all this stuff. And okay. I done all the work and everything else. And we advertised Oats Motor Company and all on the side of the cars and all this. And uh, all this went on to all the way up through 1955, 56. And uh, he was a good friend of mine. He's a good friend of Joe, and he loved racing and all this. And uh, we done a lot of things together and all this. And then in 50. Uh, Seven. This is when I took on Speedy Thompson and Buck Baker, mm-hmm. and we won a lot of races. Then won the championship with Baker in '57, won the Southern 500 with Speedy Thompson in '57. Besides all the other races, we won with him. What kind of a guy was Buck to work for or work with? Well, he 
he he was something you know he 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 was a heck of a race driver and all this and uh i got along real well with him and uh we you know he they but one time me and him he sort of got on me a little bit we was running the race at charlotte fairgrounds and he wound up he, ordinarily we would have won the race but i don't know exactly some little something that wasn't exactly right and we ran second, so he come after the race is over. He got in. He got out of the car, and he said, "If you hadn't messed with my seat, I'd have won this race." I said, "What do you mean mess with your seat?" He said, "You messed with my seat and all this, and that's why uh, I didn't win this race." I said, "Well, I'll check it." So finally, <laughs> I didn't do nothing to it. I didn't done anything <laughs> to the seat. So the next week, I don't remember now where we went. We won the race, and uh, he. He come in after the race, and he said, See, I told you you messed with my seat last week. <laughs> but I never did tell him I hadn't done this. <laughs> well, he was one of the very best in the bunch back then, and uh, he was he was some kind of a race driver now, I'm telling you. He really drove the daylights out of the car. And he didn't. Uh, he was just like Earnhardt Sr. was. He didn't want to run second. He wanted to win, and uh, 90% of the time he did win. In 1962 and 1963, you won the Grand National Championship with Joe Weatherly. You hear so many stories about him being the clown prince of NASCAR and and being the character that he was and being real superstitious and that kind of thing. How would you describe him? What kind of person was Joe Weatherly? Well, you couldn't have met a finer feller than Joe Weatherly, and uh, he he was a heck of a race driver. He'd love to run again, Curtis Turner, and uh, him and Turner beat and bang on one another quite a bit, you know, and they run around together, too, you know, quite a bit. And, and when he got to outrun Turner, you know, he'd walk over to him and say, Pops, I tell you what, I believe I done tore you up today. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he was something else, and uh, he always liked to pull a joke on somebody and all this. And he just he just one of the real nice guys being in the garage area, and when he clown around with a lot of people, put a lot of jokes on people and all this. And He had this one box. It was about a foot and a half long and had a piece of screen wire over the top of it and had a foxtail in it and it's sticking out underneath, and he called it a mongoose. And he'd had everybody believe in that. He said, that's the meanest thing in the world. He said, he'd snap a snake's head off so quick it'd make a head swim. You wouldn't hear this tale. He'd tell all about it. He'd get everybody down really looking. He'd have a little, little piece of a stick he's running in there poking it trying to get it to come out so everybody can see it and they get down over and by the time he push a button on that thing that tail would fly out <laughs> i'll tell you right now <laughs> but the biggest thing that happened we run the race at darlington here come lomas cobbin bob cobbin's wife and had three or four other ladies with her and they were the big wheels ladies you know from ford motor company chevrolet yeah. and all the rest of them yeah they come up the pit road this was about 10 o'clock and the race started back then it was on 11 o'clock he run got that mongoose, and he went out there, and he's out in the middle of the pit, right on the pit road. He's got these four ladies or five of them standing right around there, and all the spectators on there, there's, and he he started all that bull, you know, and everything else, talking about that mongoose, and he got them all bent down over that thing, and I'm telling you right, you know, and he turned that thing loose on them, and there's five wet spots right there on <laughs> <laughs> and he just laid down and rolled, you know. <laughs> it wasn't about five minutes, ten minutes early. Here come Bob Cobbin. That was, he said, where's that little kinky-headed so-and-so? I said, what's up? And I was still laughing about it. You know? he, he said, I'm going to kill that little rascal. <laughs> and Weather's over laying on the back of the side of the truck, peeping around the side watching. And he says, pulling a trick like he just pulled and all this kind of stuff. Oh, man, he was hot now. I'm you. <laughs> and what was so bad in front of all the spectators, you know. <laughs> but he oh, pulled man. some stuff now. You just wouldn't believe. That's just the way he was, and he loved pulling all them stunts on everybody and besides being a heck of a race driver and all this and uh we got along exceptionally well and now did he ever pull anything on you oh yeah he tried everything else you know he'd do all kind of things you know he'd tell me about different things about the car he said you know i think that wheel's loose on it you know and i think it's about to come off and all this stuff you know after practice just aggravating but the biggest thing you know was went down to darlington run the convertibles Mm-hmm. We had them uh, Pontiacs, you know, where we take the top off and make a convertible out of it. Anyway, 
we got down there and uh, we was in Fireball Roberts was driving one of the convertible. I had two of them down there. One Fireball was driving, and he was driving and wailing the other. So Fireball was out running him about two tenths of a second, you know. This was tearing him up, and finally Wedley come to me and he says, You done gave him the best motor. I said, What do you mean? He says, My motor ain't like his. He said, It just ain't, it ain't got the horsepower and all that he has got. He said, You done messed up and gave him the wrong motor. So finally, I said, well, I don't know. I turned around to Fireball, and I said, would you do me a favor? I said, would you take his car out there and see just what you think's wrong with it? <laughs> well, he says, he'll see right real quick what's wrong with it. <laughs> he went out there and run two-tenths faster than he was running his. <laughs> he come in, he said, oh, well, he said, you drive mine. I want this one. I'd rather have this one than have mine. <laughs> but we were well, it wasn't a race. One race that I have always heard about and read about that stands out in NASCAR history to me was one that took place at Asheville Weaverville in 1961, where they actually called the race early well, uh, because of the track. The track tour. You know, what happened up there, we went up there to race and... Uh, the racetrack, I don't know what happened or what, but the racetrack was fairly new, you know, and all this. But uh, it was dirt, if you remember, and we mm-hmm. first started running it, and then uh, they paved it, and whoever paved it didn't do a real good job. <laughs> and, and what happened, we started the race, and uh, we was running the race, and the asphalt was coming apart, and chunks of it flying up, breaking out the windshields and all this stuff, you know, in the cars and doing all this. And, We'd have to stop about every 15 to 20 laps, and they'd go out there and the crews would clean the ass, chunks of asphalt off the racetrack and clean it all out. And we kept running, and finally, <clears throat> we got down there about done running a 200 lap race and done run about 90 laps. And Junior Johnson was leading the race, and we were running third. And, and uh, we done had the whole front of our car all beat up, and everybody else. And Johnny Bruner says uh, he got us all together while he was cleaning the race truck off. And uh, he said, now, we're going to run it to 110 laps. That 10 laps past half, halfway, and we're going to call it a race, whoever's leading it then. So they did. So we went out and run, and uh, Junior Johnson won it. We run third, and they called it a race. Man, them spectators just went damn wild. <laughs> so these about three or four had a pickup truck, and they backed it up across the road right there in front of the entrance to the going into the infield, and we couldn't get out. So Johnny Bruner, he he was the NASCAR official in it, and uh, he went over and talked to him, and he said, we come here to see him run 200 laps, and we're going to see him run. It was about half lit, too, you know. And Oh, man, they got into it hot and heavy. All the people standing around and all this, and you just wouldn't believe how bad it was. So we asked, had about three or four North Carolina, oh, there were Asheville policemen, you know, there and all this, and Bruner talking to them, so let's go over and get them guys out of the way. Let's get this place opened up and all this. And they wouldn't. They wouldn't go over there and run off the income pool with them. So finally, Jack Smith was there, and uh, Johnny Bruner, he come to me, and then Pop Urkel, he drove. He worked for me. and uh, So he said, we got to go over and get that pickup out of the road. So we go back over there, and it's me and Jack Smith and Pop Urkel and uh, – Coker was the other boy's name. He worked for Cotton. We got over there and uh, talking to him and all this stuff, and they had two befores and all in their hand, you know, going to knock us out of the way and all this. Really? Wow. So Pop sort of laid his arm up on top of the <laughs> side of the bed when he did. This guy swung at him with this two before. When he did, he caught that two before and jerked him off the truck, and he popped him right back of the head with that two before. When he come off the truck, he caught my shirt and tore my shirt about halfway off. And this one big guy, he's up there swinging. He turned around. Coker had his, had his knife, and he just went right across his rump, and his blood started flying. He went down through the field. <laughs> and uh, finally, you know, uh, we picked the truck up and turned it around sideways and pushed it off the side of the road. This guy that popped knocked out with the two before, we just throwed him up in the back of the truck and opened his thing up, and we started going on out. So... It wasn't a little bit. Here comes the sheriff from up there. He comes over there and he says, uh, talking to Johnny Bruner, he says, where's that big guy and all the ones that opened up that road and beat them boys up like they did? Bruner says, well, what do you mean? He said, I want to see that guy. Bruner said, I don't think you want to see him. said, he'll just probably tear your head up and back as he tore them up. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Sheriff said, well, we better leave it be then. <laughs> yeah. We better leave it be. It'll leave it be. But anyway, you know, and what was so funny, Wadley was just standing up on top. He done climb up on top of the fire truck. truck. He's out there just waving his arm, you know. Get him out of there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Safely out of the line of right. fire. <laughs> the line of fire. Another thing was happening. Um, there's some cat over there. And I just, this was right before we went and opened the road up. And Richard Petty was standing there. And they was talking about this and that. And finally, this guy threw a Coca-Cola bottle. Hit Petty right beside the head. I seen him when he threw it. And I told uh, Richard, I said, uh, I said, you know who that guy was? And he said, no. I said, see that guy standing right over there? Richard went over and nailed the daylight Saturday. <laughs> anyway, that's just the way it happened. And uh, after we got the road open, the cars got to going out and all. It, it was over. But it's, it's just one of those things, you know. And uh, it's just things like that happen, you know, back then, you know, and all back in the 50s, you know. We run the Chevrolets and the Fords and the Plymouths and all this stuff. The fans wanted to see their car run and all this and most of the racetracks, the Ford fans would sit here, and the Chevrolet fans would be here, and the Chrysler product fans would be over, over here. And first thing you know, uh, you, we saw more fights going on in the grandstand <laughs> than we were watching the race. <laughs> Somebody was, you know, leading the race, and, and uh, a Ford or Chevrolet wanted bump him, you know, and get him out of the way or something other like we raced back then. Man, them fans would get ill. But that's the way racing came along, and that's what made racing the way it was. And uh, it was just just one of the situations that uh, put NASCAR and, and on the road the way it did. And uh, all the races we ran and places we ran. And I can remember when they ran some races up in Ohio and Illinois and some of the places in uh when France didn't have enough cars to run, uh, they wouldn't have maybe eight or ten of the cars to run. He'd go down to the U-Drive-It place and rent five or six U-Drive-It cars and bring them out there and tape them all up <laughs> and put just different ones in and start the race so he'd have a field of cars. <laughs> oh, it was so amazing. I was up one of the races, and we had to rent a car, and I went back over there, and this guy, <laughs> they'd turned these. He'd got a couple of cars, and... They turned them back in, and this guy said, you know, there's one thing I'd say. What's that? I said, that car ain't got but about 45 miles on. The tires are wore slap out, so they just about <laughs> in the face. He said, how can they wear the tires out that fast? <laughs> he didn't know they was running around that racetrack. Well, you know, I've always wanted to rent a car and just throw some roll bars in it, take it down to the local enduro race. You could do that back counter in the 50s when uh, things were strictly stock and yeah. all this, and... Uh, you, the engines and all back then, they had to be stopped. Mm -hmm. And uh, like Fireball, and he wants Daytona, you know, in a, in a car. In a, I don't remember now with a Chevrolet or which one it was. But anyway, you know, they'd done a little something other, push rods or something other in it, and he got disqualified. And I mean, when they said strictly stock, they meant stock. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was all around good racing and all this for it to be that way. And the cars and the bodies had to stay pretty well stocked and all this too you know and you know is how they wouldn't allow to take change the seats or nothing the only thing you could take off you could take the front seat and you could take this you know how it fold up you know get uh -huh. in, you take that back off on the right side and uh you had your seat belt and that was it most wow. of the time we had dog collars to hold the doors shut and I was the first to never, I said, that ain't going to work some of these days. And I started putting metal, welding metal pieces onto the, to the quarter panel and onto the door itself and it closed. And I had two on it and I put both of them together so the doors wouldn't come open. Cotton Owens was the first to never started putting, we had roll bars in there, but we didn't have the ones all up around the side. So Cotton, and when Pearson was driving for them, they put the first five bars in the door, you know, go around the door and put them all the way around. Finally, we got to put them all the way around on both sides. You know, we had to run the windows, everything in them cars up to 61 or 62. Well, Kelly, what did you think about that? I can't help but laugh. I, he, Bud gets so animated talking about <laughs> Joe and, and all his antics, which yeah. wasn't Joe's nickname 
the clown prince of racing. Absolutely was. So to hear about the mongoose and which no thanks. Uh, I, I'm not one for pranks. So what? I, I don't think. Yeah. Oh, I don't, I don't you think really? I been oh, able. you heard it here first, folks. Yeah. Oh, you just opened yourself up, sister. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> let me rephrase. I'm not one for certain pranks when it comes to like mongooses and snakes, which I believe was also in, in Joe Weatherly's uh, arsenal. Ba- yeah, bag yeah. of bag of tricks. So. I don't think I would have been able to cover him uh, back if I was was around because I'd always be on edge for, for something to happen. Well, you know, the thing that I liked about doing this interview was just how tickled that Bud seemed to get thinking about some of these things and describing them to me. And you can hear it in his laugh. You could really tell that he enjoyed talking about those situations. But the one thing that really stuck with me about this interview was the situation at Asheville Weaverville Speedway back in, I believe it was 61. And basically the grandstands emptied and held the people in the infield hostage. Now that must have been one heck of a situation. I cannot imagine being in the middle of that. So I read your story from years ago of, of the situation and what had happened. I think I read it more than once, to be honest with you, because I was trying to picture it happening in that day and age, but then also trying to picture something like that happening today Uh and me being a part of the sport now and being at the racetrack on an almost weekly basis and being in the middle of things, just trying to imagine what a situation like that would, would feel like. So to hear Bud, you know, the, the thing about Bud or the thing about any, what makes any good story is when you are talking to your interviewee and they you can see them start to come alive, right? <laughs> yeah. And you yeah. and suddenly they are vividly picturing it and they're living it again and it's start it's coming out in their interview. And you can you mentioned that's what stood out to you about Bud. This situation though, again, I read the story multiple times and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine certainly back in, you know, nineteen sixty one when, you know, security's not what it is today and, you know, the racetrack is the racetracks are not built up like they are today where it's probably one way in and one way out and um i uh, it's hard to explain but again just the picture i have in my head is just i i can't imagine being again in the middle of that and having nowhere to go and nowhere to hide essentially when you have fans who are suddenly revolting and saying no we came here to see racing and we want to see racing <laughs> well you know if you listen to the interview with bud he describes another incident within that incident where a fan threw a bottle and hit Richard Petty. In the head. In the head. And Richard Richard Petty goes and decks the guy. Richard the King Petty, who's we know as the guy behind the sunglasses and under the cowboy hat and always grinning, always smiling, always signing autographs. But that day, by gosh, he decked the guy. Well, if I read your story correctly, I, I remember reading that in there, but doesn't Richard kind of have selective memory in a sense of yeah, not well. remembering that he did that? And, and, and he says, he, no, 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 I, I went off to, to, to get my head checked. So. Oh, no, 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 no. According to Bud Moore, yeah. Richard Petty decked him. So that's the story that we're going to go with. Absolutely. Because it's the best story. It's the best story. I was going to say, that's the better story. The thing that I enjoy about doing this podcast and working with the scene vault and going back through all the old newspapers is just how closely things that happened in this case almost 60 years ago correlate to today. Back then, you had a situation where fans held the infield hostage. Saturday night, after the race in Bristol, we have a confrontation between Kyle Busch and a fan that I got to tell you, Kelly, think what you will about Kyle Busch. But if you listen to that video that was shot by that fan and all the fans around him, you know, if you, Kyle... You know, you suck. Terrible thing. You know, this, people say that Kyle has a bad attitude. If that was getting thrown at me, I would have a bad attitude too. Now, far be it for me to take up for Kyle Bush, <laughs> but it's a two-way street here. Absolutely. You know, and I've said a few times actually this week on, on different, just in talking with uh, fellow friends or, or colleagues, and I said it on a, on a program earlier this week, if this had happened to anybody other than Kyle Bush. The story would be what great restraint 
the driver had shown in not doing what Richard Petty did in 1961, which is going up and, and decking the guy, right? Because from everything we understand, the fan laid a hand on Kyle Busch, which is yeah. what made him get up, you know, out of the golf cart and, and confront confront the fan. So for Kyle to to again not lay his hands on the driver, if it was a Jimmy Johnson or a Chase Elliott or you know, a Martin Trex Jr., the story would be different. We'd be talking about, you know, great restraint and, and how controlled they are. And that's, you know, what a great role model of, of handling yourself in that situation. Uh, again, though, when you listen to the video and you watch the video and you see the things that people are saying to Kyle Bush, everybody wants to paint Kyle Bush as the bad guy. Um, but n- why aren't we holding the fans to the same standard? Why are you yelling things like that? Like, that's that's inappropriate whether you like a driver or not that doesn't give you the right to go to the racetrack and throw things it doesn't give you the right to go to the racetrack and be belligerent and just you know say god like this these are human beings to say god awful things like that and probably in front of children in front of a college child yeah yeah it was very upsetting to me to to watch that just because again it, it just you you don't have the right to touch a driver. You don't have a right to be up in a driver's space like that. First of all, I'm sorry. Wh- whatever, I'll I'll be the bad guy, Rick, and and say that you know, race fans come off as very entitled because of the access that they have, and and they think they can they can just go anywhere and do anything. And Saturday, I think Saturday night proved that, and it just is it, very very sad to me. Just the the whole situation is just sad fan access has always been an issue in NASCAR. I have personally seen fans follow Dale Earnhardt into the bathroom looking for autographs. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I've seen fans walk up to drivers as they're getting into their race cars on pit road. And again, I understand you you want the access, you have the access, but you also have to have a little bit of common sense of, okay, they're about to climb in their car and go do business. Is this really the right time for me to yeah. approach them? And as a race fan, you have the right to go to the racetrack and cheer for you on a cheer and boo who you want to boo. Okay, that's fine. You know, boo birds are not going to break somebody's heart. Yeah. However, that does not give you the right to to as this fan did, take that a step further and say the things that he said or, or any fan says or, or get in Kyle's face and be physical. Another great example is, is I'm sure most people remember what happened last fall at Martinsville with Denny Hamlin mm-hmm. and, the, and the fan yeah. on pit road. I was yeah. standing there and watched that happen firsthand and I couldn't believe my, I could not believe my eyes. And, you know, the, the journalist in me should have kicked in because like most people did, oh, take a video, take, take a photo. <laughs> but I was so yeah. stunned at, yeah. at yeah. The, the nerve and the just how belligerent this fan was at Denny Hamlin that he took it so seriously and so personally that he had wrecked Chase Elliott that he was trying to fight Denny Hamlin. I mean, I saw it with my own eyes. I mean, he had to be held back and pushed away and he was screaming and and... I mean, I'm, again, people who saw the video know what he said, and, and I just, I couldn't believe it. I don't want to completely tear down fans, Rick. Again, I've been a fan. I'm a fan of other sports. But like you said, just have a little common sense. You know, you, you in NASCAR, I will say NASCAR gives fans, probably over any other sport, the most access. I mean, when it comes to pit road, certainly, you can stand on pit road behind pit wall and be within a few feet of a race car driver as they're making a pit stop yeah. or they're getting in their race cars. The access is phenomenal. Unfortunately, you know, there's always going to be the bad apples and it's going to be a sad day when those bad apples eventually, because that's what's going to happen, eventually they're going to ruin it for everybody and the access is going to completely go away. That's going to be unfortunate. I guess basically what Denny Hamlin and Kyle Bush needed was Pop Urgles two by four. <laughs> <laughs> I do really love yeah. this story, Rick. I really do. From and it's kind of fitting because it's from August of 1961, and, and here we are in in August of 2018 talking about it. So yeah, I don't want to completely tear down the fans, but there are some of those that you just you just have to shake your head out and be like, come on, use some common sense. You're gonna ruin it for everybody. You're making your brethren look bad. Um, everybody's gonna get lumped into being crazy race fans and and you know rednecks or whatever you want. You know, look, you're you're gonna get you're going to get that stigma attached to you if you if, if you guys are going to go out and act like this. But um, again, the access is tremendous. Respect the access. I mean, drivers are some of the best athletes in the world when it comes to giving you their time. And I know, oh, okay, so they didn't sign for one, for one fan because maybe they're running out to qualify and everybody wants to trash them. But again, use some common sense. I mean, for the most part, these drivers are, are signing autographs in their workspace. 
uh, on their way to work, on their way coming back from work. I mean, Kyle w- was done for the night, and yeah. he was still signing autographs. He didn't storm out of there. He didn't run and hide. He was signing autographs and interacting with fans, and then somebody's got to go and ruin it. That's unfortunate. Hold on just a second before you hit that fast-forward button. If you care anything at all about NASCAR history, if you've been listening to this podcast over the last few weeks and you like what Steve and I have been doing and what Kelly and I do today, I'm not looking... (laughs) I'm not looking to get rich off of this podcast. That is absolutely not the goal with this. But there is a cost associated with the production of the podcast. And also, I can't even begin to tell you how time consuming it is. So if you appreciate NASCAR history, if you think it needs to be preserved, then we do have a Patreon campaign and also a PayPal campaign. Now on Patreon, you guys know the drill. Five bucks a month will get you a copy of either Dell versus Daytona or NASCAR's Greatest Race. Ten bucks a month will get you both. Fifty dollars a month will make you my new best friend. The address for Patreon is patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer not to be tied down with a monthly commitment, you can do a one-time contribution over on PayPal at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. And again, I'm not looking to get rich off of this. That is not my goal. But if nothing else, it would help me to know that we're headed in the right direction. So anything that you can do would be truly and deeply appreciated. Back to our show. Well, Kelly, kind of what got us started talking on social media was after I started the Scene Vault Twitter account, you kind of chimed in and said that you were a longtime reader of the publication. Tell me what Scene meant to you. So we were actually talking about this yesterday when you had asked if I would be on the podcast, and I was trying to remember the earliest times that I started reading the newspaper or however you describe it. Um and I want to, it was certainly back in 2006. I want to say it maybe have been before that, because as I talked about earlier, by 2003, 2004, I was really starting to become more and more uh, ingrained and dug, dug into the sport. So I want to say it was probably around maybe 04, 05 that I started reading it. And, and I would keep a lot of the issues, certainly all the ones, again, that had Dale Jr. on the cover, because <laughs> yeah. when I first started out, I was a fan, like most yeah. people, that's who I gravitated to. And then again, when I started making the shift to really looking at the sport from a wider perspective and just being in love with the sport and and turning to a journalism a journalism field, I loved reading it because it just it had so many good stories. Like the the folks who wrote for scene could tell a story, even yeah. if it was a simple news story. Yeah. Just the writing was always something that I connected with. And reading a Deb Williams or a Jeff Gluck when when he wrote for scene, I just loved getting the newest issue and seeing the the art of a story essentially. And and it kind of became like my Bible in a way yeah. of like this is how I'm going to learn. This is how I'm going to 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 learn the sport and how I'm going to learn journalism and what it's like to write and uh, I also like to read the letters to the editor. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna <laughs> lie, they, they were they were very entertaining. I can't imagine why. <laughs> I, you know, so again, going back to us talking yesterday, I kept racking my brain of maybe an issue or things that that stood out. And I want to say maybe it was 2006 after Jimmy Johnson won the Daytona 500, but but all the letters to the editor were just ripping jimmy and chad for cheating and because that was back when chad was suspended for the windshield the back windshield infraction and people talking about i remember one issue folks talking about what a menace jimmy johnson was on restrictor plate tracks because <laughs> yeah. before he started yeah. winning he had a reputation if people didn't want to draft with him i want to say that you all even did a, a story directly on that and i can't remember who wrote it or what it was, but I just, I have that image in my brain of Jimmy Johnson, the menace at, at restrictor plate track. So yeah, I kept a lot of them. Uh, I, I would read them over and over again. I would use them as wallpaper on my bedroom wall. And, um, 
Well, at least it, it was very at least it wasn't a birdcage liner. No, not at all. <laughs> it, they were kept in pristine condition, and uh, eventually, unfortunately, got to the point where I couldn't keep them anymore because once I started using them as wallpaper, mom stepped up and said, "Okay, this is a fire hazard. We need to <laughs> we need to do something here." But yeah, it was. It was very special to me, both from a from a fan perspective, and again, when I started thinking about journalism and just the best people to learn from, honestly. You know, and I'm not saying that just because I'm on your podcast. We've had this conversation before when, when you and I started interacting on Twitter. It um, it was it was a, a great publication for many reasons. Well, a segment that Steve and I have really enjoyed doing was an issue of the week. And this week, we haven't really mentioned this, but you and I are recording in a conference room at JR Motorsports. So after you told me that you had been a Dell Jr. fan and I found out that we were going to be able to record here, I had to go back in the archives and find a Dell Jr. cover. Now, the issue that I've got that's going to be our issue of the week is November 19th, 1998, and it features Dell Jr. on the cover with his dad after Dell Jr. won his first Bush Series championship. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to trigger you or anything. (laughs) (laughs) But just just an initial impression of this issue. So I was excited to again come in the to come in and and do this because you said you were going to bring the issue with you and just to get my hands on an issue again I, it was, was is special. So what stands out and I went back and was pulling up clips on YouTube last night of of Dale Jr. clinching the championship at Homestead and he fell out of the race early with an engine issue and the thing, the few, a few of the things that stand out, and it's actually right here on the cover, is just seeing Dale Jr. and Dale Sr. together. Because yeah. at the start of the broadcast, they talk to Dale Sr., the car owner, and Dale Sr.'s like, no, I'm a proud papa. Yeah. You know, because Jr. was going to clinch the championship. So to have him, to, to hear him on the broadcast talk from a father's perspective and to see Dale Jr. and the three teams celebrating on pit road as the race is going on because they had fallen out early is just something you don't see nowadays. So that to me was pretty funny. And then just to Rick, just to flip the pages and look back at some of the stuff that, that was going on back then. And there's a lot, I think we can tie to today. I know you had mentioned there's a story in here about drivers racing hurt because there was really kind of no other option. And, you know, NASCAR not gonna changing not gonna change the system and, and things like that. You look I look back at that now or I flip the page here and it says Beam joins forces with Wood Brothers and it's like, gosh, we're still talking about Mike Beam today. <laughs> you yeah. know? And and yeah. he's still just as involved in racing yeah. and and still is a big part of motorsports and, and really has his hands in in helping teams today uh, succeed. So it's just fun. It's fun to, to to flip pages of a newspaper, and it's fun to pages. Flip, yeah, what are you talking about? Exactly. <laughs> and it's just again, it's just fun to look at to look at how the sport has changed and and where it came from. So I, I've I've gotten a kick out of it. Now you already mentioned the story in here that was written by Jeff Owens and a related story about certain drivers waiting until the end of the year to have surgery that was written by Deb Williams. There's a photo that Chad Fletcher took of Mike Skinner getting into his car and his shoulder is literally covered in duct tape. You know, he had hurt his shoulder the week before and was getting into the car. And I kind of had to laugh when I saw that sidebar that Jeff wrote about NASCAR not changing the point system to allow drivers who had been injured, you know, a little bit of a break in the chase for the championship. That's obviously not the case now, you know, because we talked about Kyle after Bristol, but Kyle won the championship in 2015 and missed 11 races. So it was kind of funny to see how the sport had changed. Yeah, and some of the great stories that we still hear about today are Ricky Rudd racing at Daytona with his eyes taped open, right? Yeah. That, that's a story that many people like to bring up. Dale Earnhardt was the same way. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard, well, he raced here with a broken this, and he raced here with a bruised <laughs> this, and he sat yeah. on the pole here with a messed up this. You know, Richard Petty racing, I think, after he had stomach surgery or, or something to that effect. Um, again, just in my time in race, like in my time in racing, I hear those stories or I can find those stories of drivers racing hurt. I remember, I want to say it was 2006, the year after Tony Stewart won his second championship. I think he got hurt 
in the Coke 600 at Charlotte. I think he hurt his, his arm or a shoulder or something to that effect. And he was pretty bruised up, but he, he still raced. That was before, again, that they changed the point system. He was trying to make the chase again uh, to defend his championship. I don't. I want to say I don't think he made the chase. I don't know if it was related to him being injured, but I remember him, you know, getting out of the car and holding his pretty much holding yeah. his arm up and, yeah. and being yeah. hurt. I'd have to go back and, and look at the details exactly, but... You know, even today, drivers still have to be told they have to sit out, even with the point system being changed. So it's funny, actually, to 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 see an actual headline, though, that says NASCAR is unlikely to change its system uh, for drivers to race hurt. That's when you now look back. What is it? 20 years? And it's like, oh, my gosh, the, it's fun to to look back again. It's fun to look back at stories and see how far we've come and see what still applies today. So that, I love that headline. I may have to take a picture of that headline before I leave. That's pretty funny. <laughs> and five years later, that change that right. wasn't going to be made was made right. and turned the world of NASCAR on its head. Mm-hmm. So there was one other story that I told you about that there was a story behind a story. I love stories behind stories. In this issue, there's a story about Jason Jarrett joining Base Motorsports. Base Motorsports had won the Bush Series Championship with Johnny Benson and with Randy LaJoy, and at that time was the the top-of-the-line organization. And I knew Bill Baumgartner, the team owner, very well. And he and I enjoyed picking at each other and him dangling that carrot of a story out in front of me and me having to chase it. Bill had a way of talking that was just absolutely out of this world. You know, I, I wrote one time that if the sky was perfectly blue, Bill could convince you that it was green. And to this day, I talked to him probably six months ago, and he mentioned that the sky was green that day. So, you know, Bill and I enjoyed going back and forth. Well, I had heard the rumor that Jason Jarrett, Dale's son, was going to be joining the team. And, of course, I called Bill, and he happened to be in a car with his son, Brian. And as always, Bill was dangling that carrot out in front of him, and he said, well, you know, not really able to say right now, not really ready to release that. At about that time, I could hear his son, Brian, take another call on the cell phone. And so I was talking to Bill, but I was also listening to Brian's half of the conversation that he was having. And so at one point in that conversation, I heard Brian say, well, Jason, we're glad to have you. <laughs> and I go, Bill, can you hold on just a second? I'm, I'm trying to listen to Brian here. He said, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I heard him, I heard Brian say, you know, to Jason, basically confirming the story that I was asking Bill about. And so I said, so, Bill, basically what I hear Brian saying is this is a done deal. And he said, Houston, you got me. <laughs> well, that's one way to get a story. And right here's the story. Right yeah. yeah. So That's awesome. And I enjoyed having that kind of relationship with the people that I wrote about. And that kind of interaction, you know, and I understood when people could not tell me something and I respected that, you know, some of the people that I wrote about didn't necessarily have that same viewpoint. I I remember one time a team owner calling me up about something that I had written and basically cussing me. And the longer he went, eventually I just said, well, you know, it sounds to me like you wouldn't be so mad if I hadn't hit pretty close to the truth. Click. <laughs> yeah, it's always the truth that when when you're on to something, that's what always gets people. That's when they start to shut down. That's when they yeah. that's when they know they've been had. So I saw that headline about Jason Jarrett, and I just had to laugh because that that was a good memory of Bill. Well, Kelly, I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed having this conversation with you from somebody who read the paper and says that it made such an impact on them to be sitting across the table with you and seeing the success that you're having now. I have not mentioned it on the podcast, but you are a two-time winner of the George Cunningham Writer of the Year from the National Motorsports Press Association. I told you before, I'll tell you now, I would trade one of my children for one of those, but you've won two in a row. It's crazy to me. So I I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. And again, I, this is a joy for me. It really, really is. I was so excited when the 
Twitter account popped across my timeline because I was like, wait a minute, I know what this is. This is amazing. (laughs) So I appreciate that. This has been a joy for me to sit here and, and talk to you really honestly. It has. It's made me think of We've been talking about covers and different issues. It's it's bringing me back to, to all of that stuff. So this has been tremendous. I appreciate you thinking of me as a suitable replacement. So it's been amazing. And finally, I would like to thank Peter Salino and the team at Centaur Media. Without you guys, this podcast wouldn't be happening. And I truly do appreciate your help. Thanks to my best friend, Joey Stepp, and his band, Frantic Radio Beings, for the theme music. And finally... A big shout out to Kelly Earnhardt Miller, who allowed us the use of this awesome conference room. Kelly, thank you. I really do appreciate it. So until next week, we'll see you then.